Now, the past two Sunday mornings, we focused a lot of attention on false teaching and the sins that often follow close behind. That's because false teaching is what threatened to derail the past two churches we've read about in the book of Revelation, those churches located in Pergamum and Theatira. Both of those churches had significant strengths. They both had admirable virtues, but their willingness to tolerate false teaching sadly overshadowed them all. And that's why Jesus threatened judgment against those churches. That's why he called them in no uncertain terms to repent. And our takeaways from those passages were clear that false teachers and the sins they encourage still live on to this very day. And our church simply cannot afford to give that safe harbor. And thus we must diligently keep watch. We must be able to recognize false teaching when we see it and take practical steps to avoid it. We must cling to true teaching, good teaching, the gospel that we've received and heard. But then in addition to talking about false teaching, we also spent time last week talking about the ultimate false teacher himself. We're talking about Satan. Satan is a real and active enemy of God's people. And he lurks behind the scenes in many of the passages that we've read in Revelation 2 and 3. Now, that being said, we shouldn't give Satan too much credit. After all, he's nowhere near as powerful as God. But we also shouldn't fall into the trap of believing that he doesn't exist. Satan caused havoc for the Christians back in Pergamum and Theatira. And he could still cause havoc for Christians today. But we rejoice in knowing that his final defeat is certain, thanks to the broken body and shed blood of Christ. And then, of course, we discuss the challenge, the encouragement that Jesus issued to the faithful in those two churches. He challenged them and encouraged them to hold fast until he comes. He told them to hang on. This, of course, wouldn't be easy, but he makes it clear that it would be more worth it. But now today we shift gears. We leave behind the false teaching in Pergamum, the false teaching in Theatira, and we make our way southeast to the city of Sardis. Sardis was once one of the most important cities in the entire region, but it had fallen on hard times since. The city had an illustrious past, but ever since then they didn't have much to be proud of. And like the other six churches in the other six cities in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus has a message for this church. And it is a timeless message, one that the Christians in Sardis needed to hear and one that Christians today need to hear as well. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Feel free to use our Bibles and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we do any reading... Let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Father, we ask that you be with us this morning in our worship. We come here with baggage and frustrations and failures and sins. And yet you graciously and kindly welcome us into your presence. And it's all because of your son, Jesus Christ. We have no right to come into your presence. We have no right to demand an audience with you. 
And yet, you are merciful. You want to be known by us. You reveal yourself to us, and for that we are grateful. And so this morning, as we learn more about you, I pray that we would give you the worship you deserve, that we would ascribe to you all the glory that you deserve. Father, help our worship this morning to be honoring to you. I pray that you would use this morning to build up and encourage us to look more like your son, Jesus Christ. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So right off the bat, Jesus harshly condemns the church in Sardis. He says they have a reputation for being alive, but deep down, they are cold. They are dead. They are lifeless. Like the city in which it was located. At one time, the church in Sardis may have been influential, may have been fruitful, But that was a long time ago. And since then, the church there has faded into irrelevance. You might say they've fallen asleep. And sadly, it appears that the Christians in Sardis are actually quite content with their current state. They may not have done much of value lately, but they did some good things in the past. They may even have fond memories of those previous works. But for now, they're content to rest on their old laurels. This church is living off its past reputation, even though that doesn't match its current identity. They were alive back then. But Jesus says now they are dead. So the question is, what happened to this church? There doesn't appear to be an issue with false teaching. There's no reference to Nicolaitans or Balaam or Jezebel, like we saw the past few weeks. There doesn't appear to be much persecution there either. There are no references to the Romans or the Jews giving them trouble like they were in Smyrna. And not even Satan is named in this passage. So you have to ask, what went wrong in the church in Sardis? Well, the truth is we don't know for sure. The text doesn't pinpoint any one particular problem. So the best guess that we can offer, and the most common understanding of this passage, is that the church in Sardis fell into good, old-fashioned 
spiritual laziness. Good old-fashioned spiritual laziness. Maybe over time they forgot the incredible eternal claims of the gospel. Maybe over time, like the seed among thorns in the parable of the sower, they got distracted by worldly concerns. Or maybe over time they got too comfortable with the culture around them. And as a result, they forgot who they were and forgot how faith in Christ made them different from their non-believing neighbors. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, A dead thing goes with the stream, but only a living thing goes against it. Perhaps this church was simply going with the stream, going with the flow, and they lost what made them different in the process. But whatever the cause of their spiritual apathy was, the truth remains that this church is a shell of its former self. It is sleepwalking at best. Jesus takes it even further than that and says that this church is dead. So what's Jesus going to do? Well, in writing this letter, Jesus metaphorically sneaks into the bedroom of these sleeping Christians. He quietly turns on the light, gently pulls the covers down from their faces, and then proceeds to pour a bucket of ice water on their heads. He pulls out a megaphone and demands that this church wake up. Wake up. Those old works of faithfulness, godliness, and ministry that gained them that good reputation long ago, they should not just be a thing of the past. He says their works are not yet complete in the sight of God. They need to get moving. They need to remember what they received and heard. They need to remember the amazing power of the gospel that they've apparently taken for granted. They need to remember who Jesus is, what Christ has done, and who he's made them to be. The alarm clock is going off. The rooster is crowing. Nap time is over. They're not done yet. And Jesus tells them that it's time for them to repent of their sloth. Repent of their laziness and get back to following their Lord and Savior the way they once did. And Jesus says if they don't wake up, that he will come against them when they least expect it. He will come against them like a thief. And when he comes, they will be called to give account before God. And if that happens, when that happens... That would be a much more rude awakening than what we've read in these verses today. Now, as I read this passage this past week, a couple phrases stuck out to me. One of them is that command that Jesus issues, the command for these Christians to wake up, wake up. And then the other phrase that stuck out to me is when Jesus says that he will come like a thief. Now, those phrases caught my eye because this isn't the only New Testament passage where those phrases are used together. Jesus uses them together in another passage. That is Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 36. Jesus is talking about his second coming, and he says to his disciples, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. 
For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. There it is. Stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, there's the other one, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So in this passage, Jesus tells his disciples that someday, after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension, someday he will return. Now, contrary to what doomsday prophecy booksellers and televangelists will try to tell you, we don't know when that day will be. Not even the angels of God know what day that will be. But Jesus compares his return to the days of Noah, when people were going on about life as usual, completely unsuspecting, and then suddenly God sent a flood. Those people never saw it coming. And Jesus says the same will be true of when he returns. He will come like a thief. But here's the thing. The uncertain timing of Jesus' return is not an excuse to fall asleep. It's not a license for sin. It's not a license for spiritual apathy or laziness like the church in Sardis. It's not an excuse for us to let our guard down. In fact, the uncertain timing of Christ's return is the exact opposite. As Jesus says in verse 42, the fact that we don't know when he'll come back is motivation to stay awake. To stay awake. It's motivation for God's people to live, work, and pray with a sense of urgency and a sense of expectation. Paul uses the same phrases in 1 Thessalonians 5. Stay awake and a thief. Paul says that the uncertain timing of Christ's return It's not an excuse to fall asleep. It's motivation to a life of sobriety, faith, love, and hope. It's all the more reason for us to encourage each other and build each other up. Peter uses the same phrases and says that this is an opportunity for more people to come to repentance. This is a showing of God's grace. This is a time for God's people to pursue holiness and godliness. The uncertain timing of Christ's return is not an excuse for Christians like us to commit the sin of the church in Sardis. Now is not the time for us to relax, get comfy, kick our feet up and fall asleep. Now is not the time for spiritual apathy or laziness. Because one day we will stand before him. And as Jesus emphasizes... He will know whether or not we were truly alive in him or whether we just appeared to be alive. 
He will know whether we stayed awake, waiting for his return, or whether we fell asleep. So Jesus challenges the many Christians in Sardis who fell asleep to wake up and to do it before he comes like a thief. But he also commends the few Christians there who did stay awake. He tells them that their sense of urgency, their watchful eyes, their eager expectation, their faithful obedience, none of it was in vain. It will be rewarded. They will have pure white robes to wear in eternity, unstained and uncorrupted by sin. Thanks to the broken body and shed blood of Christ, those people will be made fit to stand in the presence of God himself. But Jesus also makes it clear that it is not too late for those who have fallen asleep. It's not too late for them. They too can have new robes. They too can be welcomed into God's presence. But they must wake up. They must wake up before the thief comes. They must wake up before it really is too late. Now, as we seek to apply something from this passage, a couple things to keep in mind. And here's the big one. The big thing to keep in mind is that God sees through our reputations. God sees through our reputations. Last week, Jesus described himself as the one who searches mind and heart. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, we read that famous line that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In Psalm 139, David says that no matter where he goes, God is there. God always sees him. God knows everything about him. You know, we can fool a lot of people in this world. We can pad our resumes. We can exaggerate our influence. We can present a very good-looking facade on social media. We can keep up appearances. We can craft these wonderful reputations and then hide the truth behind them. We can fool a lot of people in this world, but we cannot fool God. He sees right through us. He knows the truth. And one day we will have to answer to him. In Amos chapter 5, starting in verse 21, God confronts the Israelites in a time of sin and rebellion and disobedience. These people kept up all the ceremonies. They kept up all the worship. They did all the things they were supposed to do. And yet there was something missing. Chapter 5, verse 21, God says, I hate I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God did not want their empty lip service. God did not want their burnt offerings and their grain offerings 
when they would then later go and commit horrific acts of sin against their fellow man and against God. God had no patience for their totally empty worship. He saw through the offerings. He saw through the ceremonies. He saw through the good works. And he knew where the Israelites really were. He knew that they might have a reputation for being alive. They might have a reputation for loving God. But they were really dead. And God knew it. Look at Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 25. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. We read there. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So also you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The scribes and the Pharisees had the best reputation you could have in their day and age. They were respected. They were admired by everyone. Supposedly, there was no one more holy than the scribes and the Pharisees. But Jesus saw something different. He saw the truth. And in the same way, God looks at us and he knows the truth. He knows whether or not we are alive. He sees right through our masks that do such a good job of fooling everybody else. He sees through our empty and half-hearted acts of worship and piety. He saw the truth about the Israelites. He saw the truth about the Pharisees. He saw the truth about the church in Sardis. And he sees the truth about you. And he sees the truth about me. So when God looks at us, what does he see? When he looks at me, what does he see? When he looks at our church, what does he see? Does he see a church that has a reputation for being alive but is really dead. When he looks at you and me, does he see a person given new life by the Holy Spirit? Or does he see a spiritual zombie going through the motions, flowing with the stream, saying and doing all the right things when our fellow believers are looking, but deep down filled with nothing but dead people's bones? The church in Sardis couldn't fool God. And neither can we, because God sees right through our well-manicured reputations. And one day we will stand before him. You know, one of two things will happen first. Either we'll die or Christ will return. Either one could happen today, it could happen tomorrow, it could happen next week, it could happen 50 years from now. There's a passage in the Gospel of Luke where people come to Jesus and they're talking about this horrific event that happened. This tower fell and killed these people and they wanted to know why it happened. 
And Jesus looks at them and says, you know, I'm not really going to tell you why it happened. All I'm going to tell you is that life is short, so repent. And sometimes that is a message that we need to hear. Life is short, repent. Perhaps it's good for us every now and then to step back and take an honest look in the mirror and ask, have I fallen asleep? Was I ever awake to begin with? Can I look forward to the return of Christ as a day of celebration and joy? Or should I dread it as a day of judgment? It's good and healthy. In fact, it's an act of God's grace. If every once in a while, God makes a point to wake us up from a period of spiritual laziness, apathy, and slumber. It is a good work of God. For him to sometimes rudely pull the covers off of us and demand that we wake up. Give us new life. Revive us to where we once were. Now this might sound like a lot of old-fashioned fire and brimstone. Wake up. Pay attention. Get back to work. Christ is coming soon and you better be ready. But as we close, I do think there's something to rejoice over in this passage. There's something to rejoice over, even if we find ourselves in the same camp as those Christians in Sardis. Even if we take an honest evaluation and realize that we have been Christians in name only, with the reputation of being alive, but actually being dead. And here's what we can rejoice over. We can rejoice knowing that our God, the God who wrote this passage... He is in the business of waking up dead things. God is in the business of waking up dead things. In Ezekiel chapter 37, all it took was a word from God to wake up a whole battlefield of dry and dead bones. If he can wake them up, then he can wake us up. Look at Mark chapter 5 as we close. This passage, a man comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus to heal his daughter. And Jesus agrees to go see this little girl, but he gets sidetracked along the way. And before Jesus can get to this ruler of the synagogue's house, the girl passes away. The friends come and tell Jesus, hey, it's, it's too late. You missed it. She's already dead. Don't bother coming. But Jesus insists. And he goes anyway. And we pick up in verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, And went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Like that little girl, we may show no signs of life. 
All outside indicators may be that we are cold. We are dead. But Christ can give you new life. Christ can wake you up from your slumber. We worship a God with the power to make dead things come to life. And for him, it's just as easy as grabbing a little girl's hand and saying, wake up. We worship a God who died on a Friday and rose on a Sunday. And he can raise you too. He can raise sinners out of sin and death. He can raise sleeping Christians out of apathy and laziness. He can shake off the rust and dust off the cobwebs. He can revive us. He can give us new life that no one else can give us and that we certainly can't muster up within ourselves. He can clothe us in white robes. So this morning we ask him to wake us up, revive us, bring us to life. It's not too late for us. But God also makes it clear that now is the time to wake up. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have to read your word. Thank you for this reminder of who your son is, of who we are. And Father, I pray that you would wake us up. Again, with the distractions of this world, with the busyness of life, with the many, many, many things that demand our attention, it is so easy for us to simply nod off, for us to fall asleep, for us to put things that really matter on the back burner. But Father, I pray that you would revive us, that you would open our eyes, that you would wake us up, that you would raise us up to new life if we have fallen asleep. I pray that for myself. I pray that for the individual Christians in this room. I pray that for those who don't believe in you in this room, God, that you would wake them up and bring them to new life. And I pray that for our church, that if we have fallen asleep, that you too would shake us, revive us, and get us back to doing the works that you've called us to do. Father, thank you for your grace and your kindness and your mercy in issuing this call to us, issuing this warning, issuing this encouragement and challenge to us. That in and of itself is a showing of your grace. And Father, again, thank you that we worship a risen Lord. Thank you that we know that if you can raise him, then you can raise us. We know you have the power to do it. So, Father, we ask that you give us new life that you revive us, that you wake us up. We love you, we honor you, we worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.